when the brother Ismail Bilman passed away, I came across his tweet and he told me back a lot. I'll paraphrase this, but it was something along the lines of when you hear a person who passes away, is it their physical presence being gone that saddens you? Or is it the uncertainty of their circumstances in the next stage? And with that being said, we ask Allah to illuminate the brother Ismail Bilman's grave. I'm sure everyone remembers his video that he dropped, his first one, when he told everyone that he was diagnosed years ago. And he shed tears, and then he said that he was happy with it, and he said that he was going to be patient upon it. There are three people that I've seen so content with cancer, him and Ali Banat being two of them. The brother was so sincere, Allah, he always used to remind people to fear Allah with their wives, and I kind of used to think sometimes, why did he always place an emphasis uh, where did it come from? And then when he passed away, the first thing that I remembered was when he went on IG Live with his wife and they were discussing what it was like to be the wife of a cancer patient. And the way that she was, it was it's just no wonder. If you want to know the definition of Al-Marat Salihah, you've got to look at a woman like her. You know, imagine having a spouse and you don't really know when they're going to depart. And of course, death can come to people who are healthy. But... When someone goes for a serious illness, or if we were to go for a serious illness or a terminal one, it's kind of like the clock above our heads ticks a whole lot louder. And she held it down and she spoiled him through it. May Allah give her the sabr to go through the pain that she's going through, as well as her children. Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, he said that the pain of separation from someone that you love sometimes is greater than death itself. And that's not the love that's romanticized by TV and film and as, as someone falling in love for the sake of Allah over and over again. And the Ustad, he struggled from his cancer until the time that he took his last breath. And this death reminds you of none other than the Messenger, والسلام, you know, it was on his way back from the Baqi that he had a headache, a massive one, and his temperature went so high that the effects of the heat, it could be felt from his sweatband. And he led the Muslim in prayer for around, 10 or, for around 11 days, even though he was very, very ill. Five days before he passed away, the Messenger Salam's temperature it rose so high and everyone knew that it was a severe disease. And he fainted and he suffered from pain. And on the day that he actually passed away and he was in so much pain and even though his place in Jannah was confirmed, Allah still wanted to raise him in rank by trialing him even through his final moments. That's the very same predicament as our brother and perhaps that's the only comfort that we can take from his death. And there are quite a few people who have passed away. You know, some who are scholars, some known to be good influencers, whether it's teachers, lecturers, those on social media even that try to spread the khair. And the one common fact that is ever present is the love that you see and the appreciation and the amount of people coming together deeply affected by someone that they never even spoke to. And everyone's hearts are connected. And, and, and that's the beauty of Islam. How many ulama passed away during COVID, for example? Sheikh Falah, Sheikh Adam al-Ethiopi, Sheikh Saleh al-Wahidan. You know, and many more. And for them, it was the way they stood up for the sunnah. That's what resonates with our hearts. And for people like Ustad Ismail, it was the way that they carried themselves and we will remember that for a very long time. And I guess that's the biggest question for us. How are we going to be remembered? Are we going to be remembered for touching the hearts of so many people? Or are we going to be remembered for the chaos and pain that we create in people's lives? Will the people around us weep when we leave this world? Or... Are they just going to feel so much relief knowing that they don't have to deal with us again? May Allah Azza wa Jal bestow his infinite mercy on you, Ustad Ismail.
and enter you into Jannah without any accountability. Welcome to another episode of Socotra Talks. It's your host, Fahad. Not with Mahad, because he's been married, as you guys know. May Allah give him success in his marriage. And yeah, for the next couple of episodes. But we are fortunate to have Councillor Habib with us again. For those that may not have watched the previous episode, uh, he's a psychotherapist and he's a director at Habib Counseling. And he specializes in mental health and psychotherapy. So this episode, I wanted to sort of center it about around mental health. I know that over the last five or 10 years, conversations like this have become widespread. People are speaking about it a lot. One of the things I wanted to ask you was why now should we take mental health seriously? For I'm saying for Somali men, why do you think we should take it more seriously now more than ever? I think the question is not why we should take it seriously now. Why, why not? Because mm. mental health, and a lot of time is we see it separate from life, but mental health is life. That's the difference that people don't understand. Or we kind of compromise mental health as a negative, has a negative connotation, and because of the taboo of where we came from, taboo of you don't, men do not cry, men do not show emotions, and we're afraid of that because. Human beings are always afraid of the unknown. We, 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 it's very hard for us to understand what is triggering us, what is making us vulnerable. We have no control over our emotions. We're overwhelmed. So it's easier to run away from ourselves. So what happened is that every time you run away from yourself, from your emotions, from processing, from thinking, and, and not taking into consideration your feelings, you're just lying to yourself and you're not having you're 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 designing a way to think and a way to act and a way to process in your life where you're you're doing things which are unfinished so emotions tell for example let me ask you can you know anything in your life where emotions nothing to do with it give me one thing lie to be honest with you yeah i'm struggling there isn't anything mm-hmm. in our life that has nothing to do with emotions. Everything that we do has to do with emotions. So if you look at the Dean, is the heart is the one that controls, that we believe the heart controls, the mind as Muslims. What is the heart? The heart is made of emotions. What is belief? Belief is made out of emotions. Now, when we talk about mental health, how does somebody mental health affect his dean? It's because it's when they don't believe in themselves. When, when you don't believe what you're saying, when you don't believe in yourself, when you doubt yourself, when you're not able to affirm and able to come back and reboot yourself and able to see things from your own perspective, it's very hard when things get hard, you're going to doubt everything. 
in your life. And that will affect your belief in a sense because that's how your iman goes down because you're not strong enough to wake up. You're not strong enough to challenge um, when things are going hard. You're not strong enough to have that, um, that, that, that sense of basically um, belief that comes from what you call iman. You can't have it because you don't even believe in yourself. It's connected. Belief in oneself and, and belief in Allah is connected in a way of because they, they, they're all connected in emotions. But when somebody is not strong within himself, it affects every aspect of his life. So when you have mental health and, and, the, and, you, and you talk to people who uh, the spiritual leader said, it's to do with your belief. This is what it comes from. If I break it down, your belief is linked with your emotions. So if you're not connected and your, 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 your emotion state is not really in the right frame of mind, your logic state is going to be affected. So as human <clears throat> beings, um, what would you call it? Al-Ghazali. This is a, um, is, is a father, they call it father of, and cognitive therapy. He said you can, you can divide people in four categories, the human beings. You, um, the ruh, which is the soul, the emotions, the physical, and the mental. If one of them deteriorates, every other aspect deteriorates. So this is why emotion is important. You cannot separate from the human being. It's something that you need to focus on. The same way you focus on your mind, the same way you focus on your body, the same way you focus on your, your ruh, you need to focus on your emotions. And you cannot connect with people. Again, we look at things. One of the things that I normally moves me a lot is when Umar bin Khattab said, the two things that makes me um, cry and, and laugh. He goes, I remember when the thing that makes me laugh, the thing that makes me cry, let me just, just start from that, is when I was burying my daughter and I had to, she was taking the day off my beard. And the thing that makes me laugh is when we were hungry, we will eat the statue that we prostrate on, that we believed on. For somebody to be that vulnerable, you know how strong you have to be? That, that is vulnerability. That is emotions. That he's showing who he truly is. Now imagine if you're not saying that that, that can cause you trauma. You see, again, we're not seeing, we're seeing these, the companions, how, what, what they said and how they felt. And, and we just look at him, but we're not looking at That is vulnerability to the core, Akhi. I completely resonate with those four states of being. I mean, we've had so many conversations with me. I look at it and when I see that my iman is faltering and I'm not reading as much Quran as I should have, or, you know, I'm not striving for ihsan in my salah, my iman goes down. For some reason, going to the gym becomes a lot more difficult. Yes. Um, coding or any extracurricular activities that I want to do. I just don't have the edge or the motivation. So for me, it's once one goes down, Everything else is tumbling down like, like a bunch of bricks. It's part of, it's part of, is like people can't look at it IQ, but emotional literacy is one of the most important thing in life. Because how, how you can, you can't survive without that. Because it, it's built on your relationship with others, your peace of mind, your happiness, your mindfulness. All of these things are built on your emotions, how how, you, how stable your emotions are. And once that is stable, everything else is stable. But once you're conflicted and things that 
men in most of the time they don't talk about they don't try to search for emotions or connection with other men so what happened is statistically men are more likely to commit suicide in this country mm-hmm. okay statistically a black man is four times more likely to be in- incarcerated meant with uh, with serious mental health than the white counterparts okay again when you're talking about broken family the best way i can say this when i was a youth worker i did so many i worked in in so many different aspects with family with gangs with schools with primary and there's always when i after i did years of of, of youth work i kind of asked myself there's something missing here why is it that every family no matter the ones who are practicing the ones who are practicing the ones who are having coming you can call it good family whatever why is it there's always something missing in our children in our family what is going on here and this is why i came to psychology and i realized there's more to it i needed to understand more than than just that once i became a psychologist i understood that what is missing is that emotional connection the love the attachment the understanding the the the, the, the navigating of the world is 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 to do we do not see the world as it is but as we are you know the sense of we were taught to accept everybody else but yet we don't have to accept ourselves look at the hadith la yu'minu la la yu'min ahadukum hatta yuhibba li akhihi ma yuhibbu li nafsihi none of you truly believe until you love for your brother which you love for yourself now how if you are having relationship of hate of always um critical negative thinking in every single way you will see the world negatively allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said i am whatever my slave thinks of me again what does it mean if you look at the world negatively your world is going to be negative what is the world is the how we how we perceive our reality how we see our reality so if you are looking negatively look at what you talk about ain when you talk about seher when you talk about hasad this comes from somebody who lacks confidence within themselves somebody you can you can say somebody who lacks tawakkul in allah but how can you have tawakkul when you don't even trust yourself in that kind of context is a level that comes to it you can again when i'm not i'm not saying that all of these things have to be in par you can't take one of the other there's not that equation we, we have a tendency of saying you have to have one and the other will come no you have to have all you have to work on all of them they don't have to be up there but at least they have to you have to work on them you have to try to be normalize them in that kind of context and this is what we're struggling with and when you talk about the western philosophy of mental health the way we look at it which is when you play football your endorphins are high you go up there you're you know you feel better because you're physically but your resilience increases and because your physical increases your mental increases your emotional increases they they carry one another you can't take one out of the other it's like a, a table with four legs the, the the more the shorter it is one leg the more unbalanced the table is counselor um look at myself as a somali man living in this country in the west and for as long as i've lived alhamdulillah some i can get by things quite easily sometimes it requires a lot of help a lot of help that sometimes i don't ask for even to this day you know it's very difficult for me no it's, it's not it's not very difficult for me but i'm always trying to figure things out for myself and then the very last minute when i need it then i start reaching out to people 
why do you think it's so difficult as a Somali man to just accept that he needs help? Why do you find it difficult as a Somali man for you to seek help? Just for you. Let's make it between me and you now. Put me on the spot there. Um... I actually wasn't expecting you to ask that. <laughs> uh, to be honest, fear. Of what? Failure. Failure in which way? Not being able to get things done, not being able to be successful in life, not achieving great things. There's When you look at a lot of, well, like we're supposed to be go-getters, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to... Um, chase success and we're supposed to thrive under pressure and things like that but for me I'd probably say that there's always been a lingering thought that if I can't get things done if I can't finish what I've started on my own I'm going to be a failure for you if you ask if you don't do things on your own and just analyse what you're saying mm -hmm. that means you're a failure so subconsciously what you're saying is if you ask for help you haven't done that on your own is that is that something that you feel like you're weak because you're asking for help, you're not doing it yourself? Yes, you could you could perceive that, that. Okay, let me rephrase this. Do you feel like asking for help is something, when you ask for help, what, what, what feeling comes up for you? <clears throat> so, Fahad, like, really reaching out, like, you, you, can, you can do this by yourself, but you don't want to do it. You can do this, but you don't want to do it. Like, do you really need to reach out to people when you can just try to get it done by yourself, just lock in? That's one of the main thoughts that come to my head. Why is it difficult to reach out for people? What is stopping you? Why you have to, oh, I have to repeat it, Fahad. Why are you reaching out for people? Why is it difficult? Just innate that we've just been taught from a very, very young age. For you? Yeah, to deal with things on your own. So what feeling does, does it provoke when you ask for help? What feeling when I ask for help? Mm. You feel, you, feel, you feel a bit needy or needy. you feel like you're a burden. Needy, burden, okay. I was about to say, I was wrongly about to say. There's no wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I was, your feeling, there's no wrong. Now I was, so I was about to say that I feel like I'm degrading myself, but subhanAllah, that's, no, that's not it. I literally feel burdensome. And needy. Yeah. So all of this feeling you're saying have negative connotation for asking for help had negative connotation, sharing your vulnerability. Do you see that? All of yeah. them. Have, so this is why men find it very difficult to put themselves out there because they're, they're afraid of rejection. Mm. Because our, our identity, our self-worth is we are strong, we are leaders, we are capable. So if you're asking for help, that means what you're saying to yourself is you're not good enough. You can't do this. But the thing is, none of us can cope on our own. We're all going to have up and down. But it's about good mental health to understand. You're going to have certain days where you're going to feel overwhelmed, but those uh, that feeling is gonna is not going to be consistent. And again, a strong man, a man with confidence, is a man who's able to put himself out there and say, look, can you, can you help me? Because this is the only way you're going to grow. It's the only way you can achieve anything. Because if you don't ask for help, you're never going to know what you're lacking. You're not going to see another perspective. But that's the only way to, to be the best that you can be. So you're not seeking help. 
or us men not seeking help, not being vulnerable, we're actually trapping ourselves, not being the best that we can be. It actually is counterproductive. Guys, for Somali men, do you see in the UK community and in the West, do you see improvements in us actually accepting mental health and struggles and trauma? Do you see us accepting that? Um, we talk more about it. I did the research and um, the research when, when we talked about young people, they knew mental health and it, they, the different type of mental health, but they, were, they, and, but they weren't seeking help. They were seeking help because they felt like the betrayal of family, because this single condition, you don't talk about your family. The, the sense of that vulnerability, the sense of loyalty, the sense of like, uh, I can do this on my own, is stopping us from seeking mental health help. And we don't actually see how this is affecting us in the long term. Because what happened with mental health, a lot of young men who are on the street um, smoking weed, they smoke because of the coping mechanism, not because they want to. Okay? A lot of us have so much different coping mechanisms which are negative, ones which are private on ourselves. Practicing brother on practice by doesn't matter, which are private on our own, and some of them are outwardly. But we're all addicts in one way or another. Certain addictions are harmful, and certain addictions can actually be beneficial. But if you if you do it too much, any addiction can be harmful. So what we what we need to do is we because we don't know how to process our emotions, it affects us our relationship. It affects us how we connect with the rest of the people. It affects us how we see ourselves because emotion drives everything in life. So in, in this society that we live in now, mental health is spoken about it, but as black people, what we tend to have is, is something that happens to they. It's not something happened to, to us, to me, in a sense. Like it happens to weak people. It doesn't happen to me. I'm not weak. We're not saying it, but subconsciously, that's how we've been raised. A man is strong. A man doesn't cry. A man can cope with this minor thing, you know? Mm. You know, get through it. And if you're not able to do that, you're thinking, I must be crazy. I'm not a man enough. You're beating yourself up. And the more you beat yourself up, the more negative and the more you're, you're breaking your spirit. So you end up having negative relationship with yourself, which in turn breaks you every single day. And once your emotions are down, your immune system is down, you're not having enough energy to process. You're not sleeping very well because you're not sleeping very well. Your body is not functioning very well because you're not functioning very well. You're not thinking very well. And it, it just goes, your, your, your mind is low you're because you're not praying very well. It goes every aspect of your life. I have this conversation. And normally you think it's the elderly that kind of reject this notion. But you kind of see people my age in their 20s and 30s still belittling mental health and you look at the trauma that our parents went through um i was going through a few studies but if you look at it in general the fact that our parents came from the a lot of our parents came from the bad deal into inner city london didn't know the language and one of the things that we haven't accounted for is the impact of the war that happened 30 years ago and the trauma because it still lives within somali parents today is funneled through from them into our children. And the reason being is because they didn't really acknowledge everything that they went through. Like some of our parents, I was reading something, um, a 45 year old Somali man, he once described symptoms of guilt, 
flashbacks, you know, not feeling worthy, feeling empty and just feeling um, tired. And the reason why was because he linked that back to the civil war in Hammer and a bunch of militia men broke into his house. And when he tried to stop them, he was beaten with guns and he was tied up. And then he had to watch the men rape his wife and then they killed his father. And to this day, he still carries that guilt. That's a lot of our parents. They still carry the guilt, the trauma, the things that they saw in that country. And with obviously health, mental health, and your brain is so powerful, you can't just switch it off. It's impossible to switch things off. Eventually, things are going to deal with you. And, you know, you might not deal with it by talking or... I'm not just talking about talking, just actually acknowledging. It was a painful, painful, painful time. And on top of that, you're going to ignore that. Okay, that's fine. But it's going to come in the form of you taking an hour on your kids. Your kids are going to feel that. And then that funnels onto that kid going through a bunch of problems thinking, oh, why am I not loved? Why am I not this? You know, that he feels that sense or he or she feels that sense of unworthiness, that shame, that guilt. And then it's just sort of that vicious, cycle. vicious, vicious cycle. All because in one point of life, people just didn't acknowledge that they had a tough time. They struggled and it was it's completely fine. And obviously with how individuals, they cope with trauma, it varies. Some people deal with it in different ways. And there is no, I'm not saying that there's a right or a wrong way. Obviously there's a wrong way you can deal with it by sinning. That's obviously not the right way. But mm. there are, there is more than one way to skin a cat. And I feel like with us, it's not even about dealing with it. It's just not acknowledged at all. For you to kind of like have peace of mind in life, you have to accept yourself you you have we have different levels of acceptance of ourselves on this or every part we have the good the bad and ugly within ourselves we have the good that we know we're beaten to a parent so there's something good about you that you like about yourself or people say you're good about this you have certain things that you do you know very organized you're not maybe you know you sometimes wake up playful for work you have certain habits you kind of dislike it but it's not bad and there's certain habits that you do which you really dislike about mm -hmm. yourself or certain things that you dislike is again, those things is to do with personal view or perspective of that person. Now you have to accept that before you can be strong enough for you to able to deal with the ambiguity of life. Because you're not, you're not able to deal with the ambiguity of oneself. You can't deal with the ambiguity of the world because the world is ambiguous. Now, if we cannot even tolerate ourselves, how are we strong enough to tolerate any other human being? Flaws. So what happened is with certain fathers, especially I see this in, in a lot of fathers, they because of them, they never had the rahmah, the caringness, the compassion, and they just live life. You know, when, they, when Somalia was, a lot of parents, they used to live with the kids with their cousins, uncles, somebody say, can I have this child? And so he can, I can have a child. We have, we have a tradition where if somebody has, that hasn't got a child, they can go to the brother or their cousin and take a child so that child can help them. But sometimes that child can be raised in a house where they don't even have rahmah. They're just living in the house, working, nobody caring for them, or they can be with the mother or, or basically that she's not emotionally available, but they're just going around in Somalia. You know, a lot of kids just went out the whole day, hungry, you know, just they didn't even know what emotion was. Sometimes kids 
will go to will go to bed soothing themselves. These things were normal in Somalia because of the even when they in peace, people still didn't have the the right food to eat. You know what I mean? So we carry all it. So the, when the war happened and the the normalization, the society, the support that we had was collapsed. You know, you're coming to another country. You're already in trauma. You are the lowest of people. We are the lowest of people. We're in Britain right now. Look at us. We're not really, we're the lowest in this country when it comes to many ways. But we're not accepting that. We're still, we're still not accepting where we are. We're still not accepting the struggles we're going through. Look at it. One of the highest things that causes mental health is racism. The highest thing that causes racism. Poverty. Highest thing that one of the things that causes racism. And housing, another thing that causes mental health. Trauma, another thing. So we have everything that can make us have mental health issues. We, we, we have it. There's nothing we do not have it. Discrimination. Islamophobia. We don't belong anywhere. So, But we're not willing to see the struggles that we're in. We're only seeing what we're not achieving. We're not seeing the struggles, the, the difficulty that we're in. I remember coming in here, in this country, and going to school. I remember coming to Heathrow Airport, and all I saw was just white people. Literally shook me to the core because I'd never seen that kind of environment before. It, it was just a kid. I just didn't know how to process it. I come out, snow. Man, I didn't even have a jacket. Even today, I can feel my ears still burning every time I remember that day. I go to school, and I come from a place where you respect families, you respect elders, you, you try to love education. And I'm coming to a place where the teachers are called, at the swearing, you know, racist words. Kids don't want to learn. And I'm thinking, am I crazy? Or these kids are crazy? Is this, am, am I in a different world? What is going on? My brain could not process that. Again, because I wasn't willing to conform, because I wasn't, I was trying to be an adult, but the school wasn't allowing me to be a normal functioning human being in school. I didn't feel like it was, it was allowing me. So what was happening now? I'm stuck in school. I'm stuck with these kids who I don't really understand that um, I went to buy a trainer and I look at the trainers and my mom went and I said, look, this is a trainer, this is the cheapest one and it's comfortable, can I have this? And I remember the trainer was Cobra at that time. I went to school and they started dissing me. I did not understand this. It didn't make any sense to me. You can imagine what you could say. You're dissing because of the brand. I, you just try to make sense of that. It doesn't make any sense. In Africa, you get a trainer, brother. Man, I got shoes. I remember sometimes I never had shoes. And I'm here getting this because of this. It didn't make it's the whole, the whole society is upside down to where I came from. Getting bullied because I'm not, I'm not in that level. Not able to read because I, I never I could not read before I came here. My self-confidence had an impact on me. And to my adulthood, I was still dealing with it. Now, this is something that we're not willing to accept it. Though the impact that we, we, we're struggling, and I'm still struggling with it, you know, most of us. My parents are struggling with it. I can see that. In what ways do you think they're struggling? I can see a lot of time things that I can pick up of their trauma, but they wouldn't consider it as a trauma. I can see how in some ways they kind of like disattach because that, that's the, the coping mechanism. There's nothing wrong with it. But I can see like my father saying it to me, like, 
the day I started pra really practicing the day I got shot, I realized I was gonna, this, this is final day. You realizing, wow, rotting. You know, it's like, we mm. people talk about this like it's, like it's nothing, you know what I mean? It's like, we're talking about parents who saw buried brother, sister, auntie at the same time. You know, and they don't know how to deal with emotions. We, we're dealing with our parents with that. You know, we, we, we go fathers who cannot hug their children. Can't hug their children. Don't have no rap. They have no connection. They don't know how to love their children. This is, but they don't even know it's mental health issues. So we're blaming our father because we think we don't, they don't care. It's, they don't know how to love you. So what do you think is the best way for us to sort of break that cycle? We need to acknowledge first ourselves. We need to acknowledge where we come from. We need to acknowledge our struggles. We need to stop putting each other down. We need to stop saying somebody's feeling is not is not basically valid. We need to have that rahma within ourselves. We need to stop trying to think like if you're not able to ask for vulnerability that you you're weak. We need to stop controlling things that we have no control over. How people perceive us, how people think of us because we are vulnerable. We need to ask help in the right places. We need to normalize seeking help, especially in mental health. If your physical health deteriorated, you will go to a doctor without no doubt. If your mental health deteriorates, you don't want to go to a psychotherapist. This is something that happened in Somalia before. The situation that we're in about mental health. Remember the time where TB was very rampant in Somalia? Mm. People didn't not want to go to doctors because of the stigma of TB. And if you have TB, and because the community finds you have TB, even your family is isolated. So what happened in Somalia was TB went, it went everywhere. This is what's happening in mental health in our community right now. People are getting socially isolated. Socially isolated. Parents don't want to acknowledge it. Young people don't want to acknowledge it because of the stigma. Now, if a person suffers from mental health and a brother comes to a sister and she says, I, I suffer from mental health, she probably doesn't want to deal with him. You know what I mean? It's vice versa. You know, if I was in that situation, the reason why I would reject it is because I have too many issues going on myself. I can't juggle with that trouble. If, if a sister had an illness, yeah, general illness, how would you perceive it? You've got to define general. Okay, what, what what illness would you would you have now? For example, um, let me just see. She just had an operation, yeah. um, for for some, um, for kidney or something like that. That might affect her later in that. Yeah. Would you would you consider to marry because of that? Because that that might have a side side effect later in the future. You, you know, in that situation, so many things have to be taken into consideration other than the illness. Okay, so mental health is not different because a person can have mental health and function according to the proper way as long as they have the proper help. Tools. So the help is if they're having counselling, if they're taking medication, yeah. if they're exercising, if they're eating well, they can actually be better functioning human being than a person who never had mental health because mental health you're just like your physical is going to deteriorate, your mental is going to deteriorate. We're all going to go through mental health. There's no way running away from it. We're all going to deal with it, but its only difference is some of us are going to deal with it and it's not going to be 
that impact we're able to live life. We have moderate, medium, and severe. Some of us can able to go go through, but some of us gonna be harder for us to function in life. And those are the people that need to come help. When you know it's affecting your life in a way that you do, in a way that you can't cope in your daily life, then you need to seek help. So we need to normalize it more than anything else. I think like lying to yourself is I learned that the hard way recently. And in that the moment you start to lie to yourself and you continue to lie to yourself is the moment you've deprived yourself of living a life of peace and any sort of fulfillment. Mm. Um, there is something that I wanted to mention. In terms of the deen, there are these certain misconceptions that we have in the, the religion and mental health. They don't go hand in hand. But my issue is, is that a lot of people, when they talk about mental health, you'll find the people saying, oh, on one hand, just focusing on religion, they kind of shun talking to counsellors, therapy, going through that holistic approach. But then, subhanAllah, you have another, the other crop of people who basically do the opposite. And obviously the issue of that is, and I know that you've mentioned this to me many, many times in that having Allah as the centerpiece. Allah he himself said, Whoever doesn't remember me is going to live a depressed life. For me, I find it very, very difficult to believe that someone, yes, mental health and, you know, you should go to therapy, you have to go to seek counselling, but sometimes you just have to go back to the basics. Like, are you even praying your salah? Sometimes you see someone, they maybe might not pray or they're just living a life of sin. And obviously of sins, sins can cause you to be stressed, sins can cause sadness. So I feel like sometimes, I'm not saying it's easy, but sometimes... Instead of looking at things, instead of looking at the deen, how that links with mental health, we're either just picking the religion or we're just picking mental health. But we're not really linking both. You can't separate it, that issue. Now imagine... As in you're saying you have to link it? It's, it's, it's linked together. Oh, now imagine somebody, you know like your mental can affect your physical so much that you can't get up on bed. Yeah, that much. Well, that's fine. I'm not saying, yeah, that's happened to me. Okay, now, when that happens, and then because you're not emotionally and mentally in the right state of mind, you can't pray your salah the way you want to pray because you're not strong enough sometimes. Mm. So what do you do at that time? Do you quit salah or do you pray one salah a day? You have to keep doing as much as you... Thank you. You have to keep doing Again, as much as... Again, it's not logical when you say, oh, it's because we need to build the resilience. You need to build the person um, like one step at a time. You need to have a different relationship because the person prays one salah and they go, oh my God, that was the point of praying one salah. Don't never pray any salah. But if the person prays one salah, say, okay, today I prayed one, tomorrow I'm going to pray two. The next day I'm going to pray three. They're encouraging and fostering good relationship within themselves. They're building resilience. They're changing. They're having critical thinking. This is how we need to build ourselves. Now, I've got something that I wrote here. So I'm going to let you read it. Like, please don't throw me off guard. I'm not throwing <laughs> Now, um, I just wanted to see something that this is how mental health is. So this is Abu Zaid Al-Balakhis. Al-Balakhis, yes. Sustenance of the soul. The cognitive behavior therapy of a ninth century physician. He was one of the first to classify emotional disorder in a strikingly modern way and to categorize them in one general classification, 
his nosology classifies neuroses into four types feelings and panic anger and aggression sadness and depression and obsession he wrote in great detail of how relational and spiritual cognitive therapy could be used to treat each one of his um, classified disorders and then he goes on to say we need to understand mental health existed then and it exists now mental health is an illness disorder not a death sentence seek help and don't suffer in silence you know that last part that's uh, that's, your, that's your catchphrase yeah that, that, that's me now what i what we have as counselors here is something that originated from islam it doesn't go against your deen when you when you help people you're helping them to build themselves and find themselves who they are the essence of who you are mm-hmm. and the essence of who we are is related to our religion because that's who we are that's our condition of worth our condition of worth when we feel about good about ourselves is when we're connected to our lord this is our essence of who we are. When we lose that, there's always a part of us that we know we're guilty. We know we're not feeling good. So what are we doing? We're choosing things that make us feel good now over the things that we need. What are those signs? Those are signs of people who have lack of confidence. Research. People who suffer lack of confidence will do things that they they like or want over the things that they need. Counselor, there's one last thing that I wanted to um touch on and it's an interesting discussion that i had with mad i think it was a couple of months ago and we were sort of debating about sins and he was basically saying that sin causes stress and anxiety and all of these things and i was debating that stress also causes you to sin common example being that you could be stressed from work or you could be suffering from an issue and you don't really want to face it and a man will just act out by watching porn yeah. and literally relieve his stresses all there. 100%. So that obviously that shows you stress causing sin. Do you believe that stress causes sin? Do you believe sin causes stress and anxiety? And You're both right. Does that make sense? Would it you depends stop at, on an individual yeah. what their point of reference is. My question is, would you stop at cutting? Because some of the ulama, they mentioned that sometimes you have a sin and you keep doing a sin Obviously, to the point, and one of the, um, Ibn al-Qayyim, he mentions that one of the effects of sins is you don't even feel to repent anymore. You feel um, disconnected from the people. You just find kind of for this alienation. But also, yes. the guilt, the most important thing is that guilt that you once had for doing a sin is gone. Okay. So do you just decide that one day, I just need to cut the sin and not do it anymore? Or would you go the other way? Not every single one of us can just wake up one morning and say, I'm just going to cut everything off it doesn't brain doesn't work that way mm-hmm. do you get it it doesn't work that way and this sin that you're doing is doing something for you do you, do you get it it's doing something for you the question is what is it doing for you what, what does it give you what are you looking for so when you when you talk about porn a brother is stressed out and then he goes to porn but after the porn he gets basically guilty because he done it he knows the effect of porn he feels guilty but he does it again now, the question is, why is he doing it every time? Because he's using this as a comfort. Escape. Escape, comfort, relaxation, sense of connection. You know, this emotional, because he doesn't have any other emotional connection. Physical needs that you normally have in human nature. Okay? There's a need there. 
Now, for him to understand that there's something that's driving him subconsciously to do this, he's just the way he is. For him to overcome it, he needs help. He needs to able to process it. He needs to understand to, to change his habit. He needs to understand what are the times when he's weakest when he does this. He needs to understand that what am I benefit from it. There, there has to be critical thinking. He can't just change overnight because he never got to the habit overnight. It's a habit that he done for a long time. That thing is helping him to do something. Again, we need to look at it in a practical manner. Yes, doing research has proven people who actually use porn and all of this actually don't even see women as human beings when you get to that level. You just see them as creatures. What you see in porn, animals don't do that. Do you get it? Again, but we know all of this. You, it puts you in unrealistic um, expectation of women. Like you see all of these women and you're thinking general persons going to look like that. It's impossible. You're going to feel like, again, so all of these things is actually has been proven. It changes your mind. So again, it's not as easy. So again, if you cannot do it, then that means seek help for you, somebody to help you to overcome that, to help you to put things in place, to explore it, to deal with your feelings. This is not as easy as what, they, what people say. But Sheikh, I know what you're telling me. I'm trying, but I'm still falling back. And yes, you have to. Again, you have to come with intention. You have to come with the action and you have to come with the patience and you have to come with trust in Allah. But during those exercises, and you have to accept I'm struggling with this and I've been doing my best and I need help. But what's stopping you from the help? Because you're thinking the stigma. I can't share it with anyone. People don't understand it, um, how to help you. People can look down to you. So seek the professional help so you can get the help that you need. That's the way to deal with it. New neuroscience behind pornography is crazy and we are going to have an episode on that very, very, very soon. We'll probably leave it on this episode for now, Councillor, I do want to thank you for your insight. We hope that, well, I extremely benefited. We hope that it was extremely beneficial. I remember that when we recorded and we released this episode, I, quite a lot of people, they came up to me and they said, oh, you know, this was really, really profound. And I remember when I was leaving, when we recorded, I'll be honest with you, I was like, yeah, it was okay. But then I realized I'm kind of used to it, speaking to you. It's just normal. The, the ulamas and the sheikhs are there to help us and, and to guide us. But at the end of the day, they're not counselors. They're not counselors. You know, we need to go to people who are basically um, professionals in the field. The same way you, when you have illnesses, you pray sadaqah, you, you pray to Allah, but you still go to the doctors. We need to seek professional help when it comes to our relationships our family issues, if we're overwhelmed at work, if we if we feel like we cannot be consistent in our work, if we lack confidence, all of these things are something that beneficial to us. The most successful people in this planet right now go to counseling. But it's about normalizing this. And this is something that's been happening with us long before the Western even understood what counseling was. So we need to take ownership of what is beneficial for us. And we need to understand the, where the stigma is coming from mental health, where the stigma is coming from, from the taboo of counsellors and why, where it's coming from is to do with our condition of worth because of our parents and where we came from. So we need to go against our, our 
basic our anxiety. We need to go against our logic, what, what our emotions and our past are saying to us. We need to find a different way to break the trauma and to find who we are. We, we struggle against our, our identity as black men, as black women, as Somalis, as basically British, as Muslim. We need to find a way to navigate that and find ourselves. And counseling is a way to find yourself. It's like the most successful ones are those who contemplate. So counseling gives you a space where you can contemplate and somebody else can give you a different point of view from where you're looking at. Like they're looking at it from a different mirror, your own mirror, but just bring it back to you, what you're saying, what you're feeling, bringing your subconscious into conscious and your consciousness subconscious, bringing that brain and able to see what's really going on with you able to see how you relate every single day. What is what is the thing that's coming back to you? What is the thing that's always bringing back and you're not able to move forward, able to break that circle of your past and the things that are holding you today? And the way you can do that is changing. I remember, remember the quote that said, uh, my quote is, if you come to counseling, everything in your life will change and nothing will change. So if there's anything I'll recommend to my brother and my sisters is, and um, counseling anybody can go at any time in their life and everybody should go for it but finding somebody that you can understand that you can be comfortable if you go to one counselor and it's not your cup of tea that's not the end of all there's other counselors that you can go that you can connect with probably won't say anything better so i'll leave it on that i'll leave it on that note we will be releasing episodes every other monday so please try to tune in on apple or spotify reach out if you have any questions i'll put counselor habib's details on at the end of the episode for you guys if you guys want to reach out to him and as always we'll see you on the next episode Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>